misunderstood. Yeah. Some say that he's up to no good around the neighborhood. Revolve your information. A lot of my brothers got education. Now check it. You got your Wall Street brother. Your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever chilling on the corner brother. My name is Lalu Davies Yemington, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. We choose to go to the moon this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Those are the words of President John F. Kennedy in 1962. He was talking about spaceflight. Now, 50 or so years later, so much has evolved from the foundation of NASA to where you have private commercial space flight available. My guest today knows all too well about that. But in addition to space flight, he's also a physician and just an overall wonderful human. Dr. Bernard Harris, thank you so much for making yourself available uh, for this interview with my brother podcast. If you just start us with just a short summary on your life and background, how did you wind up here uh, where you are today? Well, as I was listening to your introduction, I was laughing. I was going like, who is he talking about? I guess it is. <laughs> but, you know, as, as you recounted uh, President Kennedy's charge to, to the nation, it reminded me of the charge to me. Um, I was probably at that time, probably just in kindergarten, barely understood what that meant, uh, but soon would come into clear vision. When I was in middle school around 13 years old, watching Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin land on the moon. And when I saw that, I like every American kid, every kid of the world saw that and said, you know what, I'd like to do that too. And that's how sort of my 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 dream began. Um, you know, my background though uh, to that point was somewhat of a struggle. I grew up the first six years of my life in inner city Houston, Texas. Um, my mom and dad struggled. Uh, my mother divorced when I was six, and we ended up uh, moving from Houston, Texas, to the Navajo Nation. And for your audience that don't know where that is, it's a is the largest Native American um, nation in the country, and it is situated in the Four Corners area: New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Colorado, and Utah. And it was out there that I saw us going to the moon, and that became my inspiration. Wow. Incredible, incredible. So uh, why don't you share with me a bit what it was like during those formative years? You, you're growing up in inner city Houston, then you get transformed to the other end of the world. Uh, what were those formative years like and through high school? And how did you embark on the pursuit of that journey, even at that stage of your life? So I, I, I'd like to kind of describe that, that those early years as years of struggle you know, for my family and, and for my brother and sister and to be uprooted and, and now move from an environment that we knew very well, Houston, Texas, to now uh, a land that was foreign to us and probably everybody else other than the Native Americans who live there, that um, it, it, it caused us to look at things differently 
it caused me to go from this mindset of, you know, this restrictive environment that I was in where, you know, for a, a black boy to consider to become an astronaut would probably not go anywhere uh, for that matter. To now, the environment of Grand Canyons and painted deserts and uh, and uh, petrified forests and meteor crater. And I, I mentioned all of those things because all of those sites I would have never ex been exposed to in inner city Houston or any city for that matter. And now is in this this place of you know, enchantment, as they you know they call it, you know Arizona and New Mexico, the land of of enchantment. And it opened my mind to the possibilities. And uh, what better uh, way to start life is to be be taken from that restrictive environment to one where you can be free and dream about doing yeah incredible now you went to sam houston state um high school in san antonio how did you guys end up in san antonio so when we when i entered high school i think it was around the 10th grade or so my my mom remarried uh, and uh married a police officer who then decided he wanted to switch careers and and both of them decided to not only switch careers uh but to move and so my mom was a teacher, so she really didn't switch careers. She just switched uh, locations and schools. And so she ended up getting a job in San Antonio, Texas. And my father, you know, stepfather ended up getting a job uh, there too. And that got us back to quote unquote civilization, as, as I say. And uh, so I was able to then, you know, get into the, back into the inner city groove, went to Sam Houston High School. And, uh, and this is, I don't talk about this very, very much, but uh, I started becoming a musician in middle school and had really um, decided that this was a route that, that I was going to, to be like many, many kids that I, I was enamored with this, this notion of playing music. I played the tenor saxophone. And so getting in the industry allowed me to uh, hook up with some other brothers and, and we created a band called Purple Haze. And so during my high school career where, you know, I did football, I played basketball, but really my passion was music. And so we we ended up playing I, I'm probably five years professionally, uh, starting in high school and a little bit in college. Uh, when I finished high school in San Antonio, I actually went to the University of Houston and uh, during the off times, I would come back and join and join the group. And I mentioned that because uh, it, it really is important to know, you know the, your total audience. But if there are young people that's part of this this audience, to realize that you know you can have aspirations to do many things, and those things usually are based on your skill set. And I re realized really early that one of my skills was was music. Yeah, incredible. So go attending U of H, essentially it's uh I guess in a sense a homecoming in Houston. What led to that decision? Were you drawn to anything in particular, or was it just where you got accepted and felt like, hey, let's let's head back home? No, it was it was the latter. Let's head back home. <laughs> you know, you, you could imagine being, you know, lifted out at six or seven years old, moving to uh, essentially a foreign country, if you consider to be, you know, the Native American nations a separate, they really are sovereign nations. Uh, I wanted to get back home. 
and Houston has always been, been home to me. And so it was uh, really a, a pretty easy decision. I applied to two colleges, University of Texas in Austin and University of Houston. And uh, Austin didn't have a chance. I did go and visit, but when I found out that there were 60,000 students there, I went, oh, I'm probably get lost in the shuffle and it just gave me an excuse. To yeah. Yeah. So you go to U of H. Um, what's your experience like? You're back in school, back in your, your hometown. Uh, obviously, I know a number of your colleagues. There were a special group of students at U of H during those years. So tell us a bit about your, your college background, including what you majored in. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I discovered in high school, just to back up a little bit, that uh, that one of the ways in which to become an astronaut uh, meant that I had to major in some type of STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And uh, through some uh, research that I did, I found out that there was a physician by the name of Joe Kerwin, who was the first American physician to go into space. Uh, one of the other skills that I learned in high school is that, uh, or abilities, is that I liked helping people. And so I ended up befriending our family physician who was an African-American physician in San Antonio. And he took me around and, and showed me what it would like to be a physician. And I put those two together. And so I decided when I graduated from Sam Houston High School that I would go into medicine as possible avenue to eventually end up uh, getting astronaut course. So I entered the University of Houston in 1974, uh, along with some of my other brothers, and I'll, I'll call them brothers, and uh, because I end up joining the fraternity, the Cap Alpha Psi fraternity, uh, within a year of my arrival at the University of Houston. And uh, it was it was wonderful, because now I had a social outlet uh, to, to balance out, you know, the rigor of uh, you know, being a pre-med student and getting into medical school. So I find that unique. As a high school student, you have become so compelled and convinced of this goal and objective that you set out for yourself that you got right after it. Was was that just innate, or was it a, a function of sort of your upbringing? How how did you get filled with such conviction? And determination at such an early age. That's a that's a really good question, and um, it's one that I, I thought about. I, I think that we are we are born as individuals, as human beings, uh, with certain desires um, and certain skills that we're just simply born with. And and one of the characteristics and skills I was born with was curiosity and um, wanting to know about the unknown and wanting to learn. And to me, space and then medicine was a way in which I could sort of expand who I was, you know, explore, you know, expand my knowledge. And uh, that drew me to, I think, both, both of those professions. And then it doesn't hurt to have a, a, a teacher as a mother who was always <laughs> asking you, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, she was yeah. always, forcing us to, to, to think about what we might do when we grew, grew up. And so uh, I, I had an answer for her real, real early in life. And uh, 
it was kind of interesting. Uh, we'll get to it, but I remember a few weeks before my first uh, space mission, you know, I said, Mom, do you do you, do you remember me telling you that I wanted to be an astronaut? She goes, Yeah, but I thought you were playing. <laughs> I didn't think wow. it was going to be real. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. So you go through U of H, uh, you, you finish, I, I presume after four years. Uh, how did you select Texas Tech as where you pursue your uh, your medical uh, uh, academics? Well, Texas Tech was, was one of the schools that had just gotten started. I think when I came in the class, I think we, we, were, uh, we were six years old was when I graduated. Uh, they celebrated their 10th year. So it was one of the, the new schools in Texas. And as one of the new schools, it had uh, very good programs for, um, for uh, people of color. Um, as you may or may not recall, there was something called affirmative action. And uh, I'm not one of, I'm one of those guys that, that will tell you that I'm here uh, and I got the opportunity that I that I got because of affirmative action, because prior to that, uh, even though you were you had the aptitude and the skills to get into medical school, there was and we talk about it now systemic racism that kept us out. And if it wasn't for those programs, I wouldn't even been considered. Uh, Texas Tech had a, a very good program because it was trying to recruit uh, people of color, uh, specifically. Uh, Black, blacks to come to the medical school. And so uh, I, I love that. I, they were very supportive during my four years there in training and allowed me to uh, develop the skill set that I needed to apply to a, a very competitive program at the Mayo Clinic uh, to do my, my internal medicine residency. Yeah, yeah, and I know that the the academic rigor in undergrad compared to medical school is, is probably incomparable. So it's, uh, it's different when you're sitting in your first class in, in medical school and you look to the right and you look to the left and you realize that they were at the top of their class and so now you've gone from competing against quote unquote normal people to now competing against, you know, the, the top ten percent of university. Yeah all over the country it can be a little intimidating yeah and so i know you you, you shared texas tech did a lot to prepare you um to be successful in gaining uh residency with the mayo clinic but i mean how did that come about so in when when you're in medical school your last year you have the opportunity to do what's called preceptorships they're not quite internships because they're not long. It's usually three to four month periods of time where you can go to different universities, other medical campuses, anywhere around the world and get credit for, for that. And so I took advantage of it. Uh, Texas Tech uh, is in the middle of West Texas and there was an opportunity to get out of West Texas and, and go and do something. So the first thing I did, guess what? I, I ended up doing a hyperbaric medicine rotation or preceptorship in Hawaii. I was at the top of my list. <laughs> I love it. And uh, hyperbaric medicine, for the audience that don't know, it's the study of underwater medicine. So when people are have jobs where they work underwater, uh, they're divers, uh, caisson workers, 
uh, submarine workers and things like that, uh, there are certain conditions that the hyperbaric, hyperbaric means high pressure environment causes in the human body. And so I went to study that, uh, but I also went to learn how to dive. And so a part of that is learning how to dive. So I learned how to scuba dive and I was lucky enough to uh, get a medical doctor, especially was in family medicine and hyperbaric medicine. But before he went to medical school, he was a Navy SEAL. And so I always like to tell people I, I got my my first dive and training was with a Navy SEAL. So I got to be good. That's yeah. a lot. I'm not good. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was fun and, and learned a lot. The other rotations I did were then you know really targeted toward the the eventual field that I wanted to go into. I came to Mass General in Boston. Uh, which is part of the Harvard system and did internal medicine. I went to the Mayo Clinic to uh, do surgery because I thought that I was going to be a surgeon. Uh, in medical school, when I did my surgery rotations, I realized that I was pretty good, uh, pretty good with, um, with my hands. And so I was uh, headed to, into surgery. And then I did another rotation uh, at the uh, infamous Bintop Hospital, part of Baylor College of Medicine. In, in Houston. And a uh, funny thing happened when I was at Mayo. First of all, I, I fell in love with Mayo. I fell in love with their the, the way in which they instructed and in, in which they taught. And uh, I ended up uh, not applying to, actually I ended up applying to the surgery program for my residency, but I also applied to the internal medicine program and I ended up choosing medicine because um, when I, and I'm a calculated guy, you know, so I'm kind of looking goal oriented, saying, you know, I eventually want to become an astronaut. Surgery programs was five years. The internal medicine program was three years. And so I felt like the skill set that I would get as in internal medicine would be what I need to prepare me to become eventually a physician who would travel in space and so i would have that 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 skill set yeah wow it's it's just fascinating watching how sort of the 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 making of the man in a sense how it's all coming together because i've known you obviously for quite a while i admired you while i was back in college being a member of the same fraternity and so this is just incredible for me connecting all the all the dots. So you 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 end your final year. You're done with your rotations. You go to Mayo Clinic uh, for that next phase. And then what happens from there? So then I decided to do a fellowship. Uh, so as a physician, you go to medical school, you do your residency. And normally that's where people will stop. They will, you know, become an internist and, and take care of patients. I knew my trajectory was elsewhere, that I wanted to position myself to start doing research in space. And so I, I applied for a National Research Council fellowship to, in endocrinology. And why endocrinology? Because endocrinology is a subspecialty of internal medicine that studies bone loss. It's called osteoporosis. Everybody heard of osteoporosis. So I started doing research in osteoporosis at the Mayo Clinic and then got accepted uh, through the National uh, Research Council to do a fellowship. Guess where? 
at NASA Ames Research Center out in California. So all sort of planned. And I and if if I was to tell you that I planned this all out and I drew my you know went from this point to that point all on my own, it would be a lie. Hmm. I took the opportunity to research, find people, mentors to help me along the way that suggested that I should do this, and then I did that, and then that allowed me to be to be able to do it. Uh, go to the next step, and through you know a lot of support at, at Mayo, uh, they suggested that I go and work with a pretty renowned scientist called Sarah Arno, who focused in osteoporosis in specific area uh, bone loss, and um, so I went there and under her tutelage, uh, sort of got my research. Um, you know, Baccalaureate, if I could put it put it that way, uh, expertise, and then I used that expertise to eventually get a job uh, at NASA Johnson Space Center, and that's how I ended up coming from California because NASA Ames Research Center is in the Bay Area and San Francisco area, and I found my way back to uh, Johnson Space Center, which is where the astronauts are. Yeah, yeah, and so it's again, yet again, another homecoming back to Houston. You got uh, it. You you're back at the Johnson Space Center, and I've got to think just because you're back there, the path has still got to look rather, I don't know, tenuous at best. Because just being a researcher there at Johnson Space Center isn't necessarily a direct line to ultimately becoming an astronaut. So what what happens in the next phase when you return back to Houston? So as um, to become an astronaut, you have to apply again with this elite elite bunch uh, that are coming from the military services, uh, coming from the civilian, they've done research or coming out of the private sector. It's a very competitive pro program. And so I wanted to position myself to essentially be seen uh, by the astronaut office and especially the selection committee. So getting a fellowship at a sister uh, agency, Ames Research Center, and then getting a job at Johnson Space Center where I was focused in the issues that human beings have to deal with long duration space flight, that positioned me to develop a skill set that would be useful um, as an astronaut and also useful to the program. So, you know, when I talk to young people about, you know, careers, I, I, and if they say they want to be an astronaut, I said, first, find a career that you're going to be happy with if you become an astronaut or not, because the chances of becoming an astronaut is pretty slim, if you look at it. You know, in my class, there were 6,000 applicants, and they selected 23 of us. So, very, very slim. So, you want to, you want to get into a field that, that you are comfortable with, that you know that you can do well. And uh, I got into helping to develop the medical systems for space, for a space station, and eventually for the, the International Space Station that's up, up right now. And that was exciting to me. I got to work with cysts from all over the world. I got to work with astronauts. And so I would have been very, you know, satisfied with a career where I was helping to move the space program forward. 
but I was lucky enough in, in 89 to apply to the astronaut corps and uh, lucky enough to be, be accepted in that class, which then set me on the trajectory to go into space. So was that the first time you, you applied? It, it was not. So the first time I applied was a couple of years earlier. Um, and it was disappointing to get the call that, you know, guess what? You're, you're not selected. Um, but in that same phone call, I was told that I wasn't selected to be, a, be an astronaut for that class, but they wanted me to come to Johnson Space Center. And that was another reason I ended up at Johnson Space Center, because they saw something in me that said that, well, we want to bring him closer to us so we can check him out. And, you know, you could imagine that's somewhat of a uh, two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. So you come, you, you know, you, you're given a challenge. And if you are, uh, are successful in that challenge, everybody says, wow, what a smart guy. Let's let him join. <laughs> but if you screw it up. <laughs> yeah. So I was blessed to uh, not screw too many things up. Let me not say everything went perfect. <laughs> what was it like when you got that acceptance letter? So that was an incredible experience. If I have to share this with, with you, I already mentioned that, you know, many applicants, I was already working on the space program. I mentioned that I was um, uh, working with the astronauts and just so happened the week of the announcement of who was going to be in the class, I was actually working the mission of the head of the astronaut office. And his name was Dan Brandenstein. And he was up on a mission. And my job as a medical doctor was that when he returned from space, that we would be there to essentially, you know, from a medical standpoint, bring them in, examine them, make sure everything's okay. Uh, everybody participates in, in research when we go into space. And so I uh, was part of the part of the research team. So get this. So I, I knew the announcement was coming out soon. They hadn't made any formal announcements. Uh, we were at uh, we have an alternative landing site at Edwards Air Force Base, which out in California. So the whole medical team had to fly out to Edwards. They were supposed to land at the Cape, but the weather was bad at the Cape in Florida. And so they actually had to land um, in uh, California. And so I was there. And so as soon as Dan comes into the facility there, uh, he, you know, I said, hey, sir, how are you doing? And he says, congratulations. I'm like, congratulations for what? <laughs> uh, did someone call you this morning? <laughs> mm. And it was, a, it was a wonderful experience to, you know, get the call that I was, that I had been accepted in the class of 1990 and to get the word from the head of the astronaut office. So I have to ask, what did you do first after you had a moment to soak it all up and maybe finally leave work or who did you call first? I called my mother first. <laughs> and, I, and I said to her, mom, you know, I'm gonna be an astronaut and you can kind of hear, oh, she was really excited, but I think there was that moment in her head to say, no, wait a minute. That means that he has to get on a rocket and blast yeah. off. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know this was what, four years after uh, the the, the mission 
uh, challenger. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So after it's all settled, you're part of this class of 23. Uh, what happens next? Take us from that point. I, obviously, everyone wants to hear about this first space flight, but there were some steps along the way before that happens. Certainly. When you become an astronaut, you go through two years of basic training where you learn how to fly jets. I was already a private pilot, but I didn't know how to fly you know, military jets. So you go through, uh, we fly the T-38, so you go through a T-38, a ground school, a flight school, that's the aircraft that we fly. And we also go through a shuttle training program. We learn how to fly the shuttle. Uh, the class is usually divided into mission specialists and then pilot astronauts. The pilot astronauts, uh, after about a year, they we then split our training from the basic training that an astronaut gets to now more specific training based on our skill set. And so the pilots. They spend more time and hours just flying the shuttle. And then the mission specialists do more of the, the scientific um, uh, investigations and, and support. And so it was, um, it, was, it was very interesting. Once I finished my uh, basic training, then uh, I think about three weeks or so after I had finished the basic training, I got the call from uh, the new head of the astronaut office to offer me first flight. And so that that was a another wonderful call. Sure. And at that point, I know you're gonna ask, who did you call? <laughs> so the person I called was, was my wife. <laughs> because I'm now married to got it. Got it. <laughs> Say honey, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that I got selected for a flight. The bad news is that I have to go training at the European Space Agency in Cologne, Germany. And so I actually lived a training for that flight for about a year and a half. Wow. So you're like this truly Renaissance man. You're a saxophone player, basketball, <laughs> football athlete. You're a pilot. Like even before you're an astronaut, you already could fly. And then you're a scuba diver. Like it's just incredible um, how this all comes together for you. But in that class of 23, how many of you actually got to um, uh, be involved in space flights? Yeah, all of us in my class. Okay. But to your point, not all uh, members that get selected actually will travel in space for, for various reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. Some wash out with the training that's done. Um, some uh, like when we transition between one platform to another, for example, uh, what inspired me was the Apollo program. And that's when we were sending people to the, to the moon. Well, around the seventies, you know, mid to late seventies, we then shifted focus. We no longer were going to the moon. We were now focusing to create a new vehicle called the space shuttle. And in that period, it was about a 10 year period. The astronauts that were selected during that period, many of them didn't fly because they would have to sit down for 10 years. And some chose to not stay in the astronaut office and go back to their, to their jobs. Wow. So the, um, you say that some washed out. What are some things that cause people to wash out from the impact of the training? It doesn't sound like it was a cakewalk in the park. Or oh, it's not, <laughs> by, by no means. 
You know, sometimes people are not comfortable in flying jets. Sometimes people are not comfortable in working as as team members because you have to work as a crew. And some sometimes when you have a profession that uh, is attractive to very type A go-getter personalities, sometimes those are individuals and sometimes those individuals don't mix well in teams. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's a there's a running joke in the asset office if you uh, if you want um, 10 opinion, opinions about something, ask 10 astronauts. You will get 10 separate <laughs> opinions <laughs> because we're, we're just that independent. And, and I probably yeah. fall in that, that category. And, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, it's just not in the cards. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get to go um, on this first uh, space flight. What was that like? Incredible. Um, my first mission, as I as I mentioned, was with the European Space Agency. So we worked very closely with uh, the German government, who had the responsibility of training any European astronauts. And since this was a joint European-U.S. Uh, mission, we ended up in Cologne, training at the astronaut training facility there. And it was just uh, incredible uh, to be part of that. Uh, in my first time living outside of the country, um, learning a, a new language. <clears throat> and before you ask me, I just learned how to do uh, enough to order, you know, food and wine and beer. <laughs> uh, and all the training, uh, most space training is done in English. So that was not that was not a big issue. But it was wonderful. We, we spent a year and a half training for that mission. It, I flew on board Columbia. And uh, Columbia is a special vehicle, uh, at least for me, it was my, my first vehicle, but it was also the first vehicle that went into space. So it was built very heavy uh, and, and really robust. Um, and if, if I could, let me describe for you that the liftoff and, and how wonderful that is. So we usually go into the suit up room to put on our suits and the orange suits you've probably seen astronauts wear called launch and entry suits. And those suits are partial pressure suits. They allow us to uh, be able to survive on the way into space. So if something happens like the Challenger accident, the suit actually has a parachute on it and we can get out of the vehicle the problem with the Challenger accident is that they had no capability of getting out of the vehicle. We know that when the vehicle exploded, that the crew cabin was intact, but there was no no hope for the crew. They were about 100,000 feet. And so based on what we learned from Challenger, we incorporated all these new elements, including this launch and entry suit. The suit weighs about 120 pounds, so it's very heavy. and. Um, and so requires a little finesse to get into the vehicle. So that whole time period prior to liftoff is about two to three hours. Technicians then get you into your seat, usually about an hour before liftoff. And after the after you, they get settled, they close the door. And now you're just sitting around thinking about why am I here? Why did I really want to lift off in space? (laughs) 
And then the countdown comes. And when the countdown comes, you get this real big kick in your pants of seven and a half million pounds of thrust from five engines that push this five million pound vehicle in the space fairly quickly. Within two minutes, we reach an altitude of 100,000 feet. And now we're above most of the atmosphere. So now those engines uh, then kind of uh, go from that seven and a half million pounds down to just three main engines on the shuttle, but we're above most of the atmosphere. So we still have enough thrust to continue to accelerate. At two minutes, we're traveling around 2,500 miles an hour. And over the next six and a half minutes, being above the atmosphere and with those three main engines, we then reach an acceleration of 17,500 miles an hour uh, and an altitude of 250 miles above the earth. And we do all of that in eight and a half minutes. So think about energy from lifting off from the Cape and uh, that it's required that gets released to get you into orbit some three or 4,000 miles downrange, 250 miles above the earth, traveling at 17,500 miles per hour. It was mm. pretty amazing. And the first view that I saw when I got out of my seat and experienced zero gravity was uh, looking at England because across the entire Atlantic Ocean. So England heading into Europe and heading on over into Russia. At 17,500 miles an hour, we get to go around the world every 90 minutes. So we get to see a lot of the, the world beneath us. You know. Mm. And so on that mission, were you just, was there a destination or you were just orbiting? So that particular mission, we were just orbiting. And we carried on board a laboratory in the cargo bay. And you recall the shuttle is fairly large. It's a, the cargo bay of the shuttle is big enough to hold a semi-truck and, uh, and trailer on the inside. Mm. The vehicle is pretty big. Um, and inside that, we will put modules that allow us to have experiments inside those pressurized modules that we, we conduct during the life of the experiment. So that mission was uh, uh, 11 days in orbit, and we had 91 different investigations that, that we did from you know, doing experiments on ourselves to taking animals and plants. And um, we actually had a telescope that we took took on orbit to, uh, to do the, the experiments. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you, over the 11 days, I presume you do have to make time to sleep uh, somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you... How did sleeping occur? And was the um, at this point, are you constantly in orbit or is there some sort of levitation that goes on at some point during this mission? So we are in orbit. It's so part of the speed, the acceleration that I described is to keep us in orbit around the Earth. So if I was if this was the Earth, what we try to do is lift off from the Earth, get into orbit. If we maintain the speed of 17,000 miles an hour, we will continue to fall around the Earth. So essentially, we're falling around the Earth. Because the vehicle is falling around the Earth at that speed, on the inside, anything inside the vehicle is also falling at the same speed. So relative to the, the uh, spaceship itself, we float. So mm -hmm. that's what's called microgravity. 
And what holds us in orbit is a gravitational field from the Earth. So think of that gravitational field as a string that's holding on to the vehicle. Mm. And as long as we stay at that speed, we will fall around the Earth. So that's a, that's what's called an orbit around the Got Earth. It. And satellites do the same thing. So they have to maintain they're much higher. They're at 30,000 miles and we are at 250, 50 miles traveling at that at that speed. And so to come home, what do you think we need to do? Slow down. You got it. So we have to slow down. And once we slow down, then gravity pulls us to the Earth and we fall back in, into the Earth. And that's called orbital mechanics. It's um, it's a type of math. Um, and physics that we use in order to uh, navigate uh, the solar system, including orbit, orbiting the Earth. Mm -hmm. So you didn't tell us how you slept. Oh, yeah. Very carefully. No, <laughs> we had stations. Um, my first mission was a two-shift mission, which meant that we have um, two ships of crew. There were six on the crew. So three would be up working while the other weren't. And that's why we're able to, to do all those, those different experiments. Inside those sleep stations, and they're about the size, uh, I would say three and a half feet by two feet or so in height and about seven feet in length. And inside we put in sleeping bags and those sleeping bags have to be hooked to the bottom of of the uh, sleep station or the top, it, it just depends because you're floating. And so when you're ready to go to sleep, you essentially open the door to the sleep station, float into the sleep stations, uh, carefully you know, float into the sleeping bag and then zip yourself up so your body stays in place while, while you're sleeping. Wow. Now, missions that don't have sleeping stations, they actually take those same sleeping bags and they'll hang them on the wall, on the ceiling, on the floor, and mm -hmm. uh, eerie. That's that's what we did on my second mission because we didn't have sleep stations. Yeah. Now, in um, your cicada rhythm, I got to think that's not even a factor when you're up in space, So, but somehow you manage through it all. Yeah. So what happens is that we put ourselves on what's called mission elapsed time, which starts at the moment you lift off from the earth and you go for a 12 hour period. That's your day. And then mm -hmm. the next period is your night uh, because it's going around the world every 90 minutes. You get to see a day and night every 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. You come back from that mission. It's successful. What other missions occurred and when was the uh, mission that you ultimately went on and got to perform the extravehicular uh, activity that wrote yeah. uh, you etched your name permanently into the annals of history? So my next mission, the training for the next mission occurred about uh, eight to 10 months later. Um, and I started training it. And this mission was the first mission to go to the Russian space station. So this was the first mission that we, uh, that we trained with Russian uh, crew members and headed to their space station. So that was the highlight of, of that mission. I spent nine days on orbit on, on that flight. Uh, after we did our uh, visit to the 
that is called Mir, the Russian space station. A couple of days later, we did the spacewalk, and I did spacewalk uh, along with Michael Fold. Uh, whenever you you go out and do spacewalks, it's like diving underwater. You never dive alone. You never do a spacewalk alone because something mm-hmm. could happen. They have someone that's gonna gonna help you. And it was wonderful. We spent uh, just under six hours out, did um, a lot of different types of uh, investigations outside of the vehicle now. And one was deploying a satellite and we deployed that satellite and then recovered it uh, some days later. Uh, we also did some activity to prepare us for building the International Space Station. And uh, before we deployed the satellite, we did something called mass handling. Now, what does that mean? In orbit, things don't weigh anything, but because they don't weigh anything, doesn't mean that they don't have mass. And so think of it as a a car that weighs 3,000 pounds. In fact, the satellite weighed 3,000 pounds. If I take that car or the satellite in this case, and I push it, so first of all, even though it doesn't weigh anything, it may be floating in front of me. To get it to move takes some effort. But once I get it to move, that mass then moves at a certain rate. And as it moves at a certain rate, you can't stop it. You can't just go out there and grab it and stop it because you try to grab it, it'll just pull you right along. Or if you try to stop it being in front of it, it'll just pull you over. So we develop techniques of what's called mass handling to learn how to handle masses of that size and that that mass because it was the precursor to building the International Space Station, which would be a bunch of these modules put together as what's up uh, today. But let me back up just a little bit. When you got the that next call about the mission, was it just another, hey, we've got another mission planned or, hey, Bernard, this is it? Uh, this is it from the standpoint of? This is the one where you get to actually be oh. the, the chosen two to step outside <laughs> of the vehicle. Yeah, no. <laughs> so I told you that the, the mission objective was to go to the Russian space station. So when we were selected, we didn't know that there was going to be a spacewalk on the mission. Uh, All we knew is that we were uh, going to be the first shuttle to go to the station. And so everything was built around that. And then uh, with us knowing that we were going to the space uh, space station, uh, the Mir space station, then uh, they included a module where we could do other experiments because we're going to be up there for nine days. And it would take us about two to three days to catch up with the station. Or I described over mechanics. So as it's also in orbit, we have to it in orbit. And then we have to slowly increase our speed to catch up with it and then connect, uh, connect with it. So that took a few days for us, for us to do that. So in the meantime, we had the experiments that we were doing and then following the mission, as I said, uh, we then did the spacewalk. So the spacewalk got added um, kind of midway through our training cycle. What did, uh, what, what, tell us about when that call came in. I mean, when was it brought to your attention that, hey, 
Dr. Harris, there's going to be a bit more that's done. And did you in that moment realize that history was about to be made? Yeah, no, <laughs> in fact. So, you know, as an astronaut, I was so focused on what the mission objectives were. Um, we got the call from our bosses, at least my, my boss, who's the commander of the mission, got the call and said, they're thinking about adding a spacewalk. Um, I, I think Bernard, you and Michael should do it. And we were, you know, you know, happy to do it. At that point, this was Michael's, this would have Michael's third mission and my second mission. And so, uh, and they wanted to select people had, who had already had that experience because you, you try not to have um, someone who's gone up for the first time to actually do a spacewalk, although they're doing it these days now. But back in the day when we didn't know a lot, uh, we, we were pretty cautious. And so that's how we got selected. And then we ended up going through a, a training program. And I have to tell you, honestly, I had not thought about the fact that I was you know, going to be the first African-American to walk in space. It just didn't dawn on me. And it probably wasn't until I was, um, I think, on orbit when we we get news reports that come out. And then mm. suddenly I'm being referred to as the, the first, you know, and this is before we did the spacewalk, that, you know, Dr. Harris is going to be the first African-American to walk in space. And then we had a few other firsts, Michael Fold was a British citizen and he was going to be the first Brit to, uh, he was the first British citizen, I believe, who was an astronaut and then would walk in space too. Mm. And we had the first female pilot, uh, Eileen Collins, who was also on our flight. And because wow. of all those firsts, uh, we got a call after the spacewalk was done uh, from President Clinton who was the president at the time to congratulate us. And that's probably when it, when it hit me. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, wow. I, I think a few minutes before the call, because we didn't even know the call was happening. We had finished up and, and mission control let us know that, you know, President Clinton was getting ready to talk to us. And I was wow. like, oh my God, the president's calling me. <laughs> Truly remarkable. Um, so you, you, you go on this historic flight, it's, uh, it's a successful mission. Uh, you return back, uh, what happens next with your career as an astronaut and what, what net, what does the next phase of your life, uh, evolve into? Yeah. So, you know, at this point I had accomplished, uh, many of the things that I wanted to do, uh, as, as an astronaut, you know. My aspiration was to see the Earth from space, to uh, be able to you know follow in the footsteps of um, you know John Glenn and many others before me as astronaut guy, first African American uh, to go to space. Fred Gregory and Charlie Bolden, Mae Jemison had all gone before me. Um, I was sort of in that first generation of black astronauts. In um, I had uh, done a spacewalk, something that uh, astronauts want to do, you know. So flying to space and, and becoming an astronaut and doing that, that's great. 
But everybody wants to don that EVA suit, extra vehicular yeah. suit, and go outside. I had done that on my second mission. I also had served as the payload commander. So I was in charge of all the experiments and making sure that all those things, things were done. So, you know, when I, when I look at the boxes that I had checked in the 10-year period that I worked at NASA, I decided that, well, you know what, I'm still pretty young. I was 39 at the time mm-hmm. uh, on all that. And I decided that I would um, go after another dream of mine, and that was to become an entrepreneur, to go into business. And so I elected to uh, step out of the program at that point and sort of head toward, you know, my, my business career uh, that I'm in today. So what, uh, what was that career that you transitioned into? So I initially thought that it was going to be in the aerospace business because that's what I've been involved in, in space for, for some, some time. I got hired by a company uh, called SpaceHab, which was the first commercial uh, space company uh, that had started working with NASA. And announced mm. to me, I didn't realize what that impact would be. Um, mm. This was, shoot, a long time ago. So this is in the early 90s, um, mid-90s, and NASA was not ready for commercial space. So we struggled as a small company. And small company in aerospace is relative, by the way. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, when we are competing with Boeing's and Lockheed Martin's, they are multi-billion dollar companies, and we were like just less than a billion dollars, you know, and that would make it, you know. One of our modules cost a hundred million dollars uh, hmm. in the space, um, so everything's relative. But I, what I learned in that, that during that time, that three-year period of time, is that I knew nothing about business, and I realized that even though I was hired as vice president of, uh, I think it was medical operations uh, for for the company. When it came time to sitting in and senior management meetings, I was clueless of how to run a company mm-hmm. and on the finances, which drove me to um, gain knowledge. So I, I went back to the University of Houston, got an MBA, and realized that there was more to life than running an aerospace company. In fact, that I, through a mutual friend, got introduced to the venture capital industry and realized that that's where my next passion is going to be to get involved with uh, not only being an entrepreneur myself but helping entrepreneurs uh, fulfill their dreams at the same time make a lot of money yeah 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 you know so your, your career in a sense it's almost like an athlete right you you train so hard Early on, you 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 developed these disciplines. You you acquired the education. You achieved this pinnacle of success, and then at thirty nine, it's like, well, time to hang them up. And now you're in the real world uh, with the rest of us. And, and it's incredible that you can uh, you know be vulnerable enough to share that. Yes, there 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 are some challenges, and it's it's almost a parallel to what a lot of athletes experience you go from sort of this structured environment where you're task oriented and, and, and it's your field and you're a specialist, but now you have to uh, make it and thrive. And, and you had the, the, 
I guess it's your natural curiosity to say, hey, I don't get it. Let me go acquire the knowledge that's necessary. And so you position yourself. So I think that's an essential uh, uh, piece uh, of your story. Then beyond that, you keep exploring till you find a new niche, which is in venture you know, capital. I mean, it's a common term now, but you know, it's been over the last five, 10 years that people really come to uh, have a better understanding of what the venture capital world is about. So when you launch into this new space, um, what are some of the challenges that you have to uh, that you have to endure? I'm sure you have to build a new set of relationships because it probably wasn't a lot of medical doctors in the venture capital space. Yeah, so probably the med being a medical doctor was was not an asset. <laughs> you know, you would think so. So here comes this guy that uh, not only is a medical doctor, but an astronaut. And uh, now he says he wants to be in the, in the venture capital. So naturally, there's some skepticism. Can can he cut it? And so that was also one of the reasons I went back and got an MBA to say, OK, I have all of these credentials, but I also had this business credential and this experience in working with a, um, a for-profit company, so a corporation. So I had that corporate experience. And, you know, to get into the venture capital business, I, I remember a good friend of mine, uh, Lloyd Benson, who was also in venture capital, um, junior. And I said to Lloyd, I said, Lloyd, I want to, you know, when I, when I knew I wanted to go into venture capital, I said, you know, I, I want to, you know, you know, become a venture capitalist and how do I break into the business? And he said to me, Bernard, you don't break into the business. You have to be invited. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. And the reason I bring that up is, is networking to the point that you made a minute ago is important. Uh, it's, you have to develop a new set of relationships in addition to the skill set that you, that you have in order to do this. And so uh, I had to I had to find those relationships and those relationships worked out well for me. So that's okay. um, hmm. you, you've gone out there and you're building the new relationships and you doing all these things. Um, but you also expand your horizons beyond just the venture capital world. Uh, you get into philanthropy. Why did that matter to you and, and, and um, what led to that decision? Well, it's probably started from, from my mother who uh, said to me that, you know, education was the way out for us, the way up and out for us. Um, coming from this uh, broken home uh, and realizing as an astronaut, being asked to go and be a mentor in, in communities, black communities, uh, communities of color all over this, this nation, I realized that uh, education is not equal and that I wanted to do something to ensure that you know, people of color, specifically uh, blacks, had the opportunity to, to fulfill their dreams, whatever their dreams were. And in some cases, in, in some of the young people that I deal with, they don't have dreams. They haven't figured it out. And so I decided to create the Harris Foundation, an institute to focus on creating programs that would expose our people, young people, uh, to careers. And in some cases, some of our programs is to reintroduce to them that 
they are powerful. That they can do anything that they, they want to do, which is one of the things that my mother told me when I went ran to her and said, I want to be an astronaut. She said, well, you can be and do anything that you want to be. Um, do you know how many young people don't get that message? And many of those young people are people of color. And so, you know, my new ministry is, is about ensuring that, that that happens. And so I've been pretty lucky to not only you know, create the, the, the foundation, but also be part of an organization called the National Math and Science Initiative now that I now run to even have a greater reach than my foundation could ever have done alone. Wow. Truly remarkable, uh, truly remarkable. Uh, if, uh, let me, if, if there was advice you could offer to a 20 or 30 year old version of yourself, what would that advice be? I would say, uh, don't take life so seriously. <laughs> I know that sounds, <laughs> and something I'm trying to learn in my 60s. Uh, mm. But you know, that is, uh, I think that's important. Uh, when you're young and you're, you are ambitious, you know, you, you, you know, you set your goals and you go after them with this furor, which I did. And you can tell from my story that you just heard over the last hour, hour or so, I was a man on, on a mission. Um, sometimes you can focus on that mission too hard and miss out on, on things. I don't think I missed a lot, but I think it is about having balance in, in life. And so I think that at every stage, what I've tried to do is try to find that balance. Sometimes I got it right. Sometimes I got it wrong. And so that would probably be the advice I would offer. Got it. Got it. Where, you know, you speak so much of triumph and it truly is just the all American story but there had to be some challenges along the way. What were some of the low points uh, that you might've encountered, whether it was in college or along this career journey, particularly the, the earlier part of your career? You know, I, I, I would say that um, some of it is around uh, systemic racism, which we're talking about these days, you know, where, you know, I was, uh, when I decided that I wanted to be an astronaut at a young age and have naysayers to say that, you know, you know, you're black, you, you know, there are no black astronauts. Right. And so, <laughs> and, and for me, you know, initially I was going like, well, that's true. You know, and I paused for a minute, but then I said, you know what, I'll be the first then. Or, you know, being in college and being told that, you, do you know how difficult it is to get to medical school and, and to see some of my, my black uh, student colleagues apply for medical school and not get in, or even worse, some of my black student colleagues who were in medical school because of the system uh, were forced out. They were not given the help that they needed to, to get to get through medical school. So when I saw those things, I, I would always say, okay, what do I need to do differently to make sure that I'm not in that position knowing that that, that happens? You know, and being in that same university and um, having, you know, meeting people who are all well in, in tension, 
and say that, God, you're here at the university. Are you playing basketball? Because I'm a tall black guy. And I, I love saying, no, I'm in medical school. And see the look on their face. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so breaking those barriers, I think, was, uh, was good. Um, and then, you know, just just the, the last thing I, I would say, you know, having the, the rejection, the initial rejection of not getting in the astronaut class the first time I applied, you know, uh, was uh, was a downer. It was like, okay, so they don't want me, you know, and I had a choice to make at that point. I could just accept it or I could say, what can I do better? So the next time they had no choice but to select me. And so I chose the, chose the ladder and, and uh, we're here today. I keep going back to your early career. Um, how did you identify mentors? You mentioned the impact that they had and sort of helping you think through some of those critical decisions that you made. Um, how did you find the right mentors and what are your general thoughts about mentorship? I think mentorship is important. And those of us who are quote unquote successful, I think it's it's our job to reach back and help those uh, around us, you know, no matter what color they are, but uh, but specifically for, for blacks and, and black students, because we just start with so many you know, stereotypes about uh, who we are and what our capabilities are. And so if I can go into inner city Houston and in my flight suit that has my patches on for my mission and sit in front of, you know, kids say, look what I've done. And guess what? I started just like you did in inner city Houston and look what I can, can do. Uh, so I not only do that in, um, schools and, and cities all across this nation. I also do that in in prisons, in juvenile detention centers. So I will go in uh, bold as I can to say, you know what, you made some wrong choices, but if you make right choices, you don't have to end up back here. And if I can do it, you you can do it. So mentorship is, is important. How do you find them? You You look for them. You, you do research, you find someone who looks and is, looks like you, that's doing what you think you might want to do, and you go and you be bold and you talk to them and you say, yeah, will you be my mentor? And I can say yes or no, but chances are, because you have, you have struck out in, um, and shown some initiative, they're probably going to say yes. And if they say yes, boy, that gives you such a leg up. So who are your sounding boards um, now? Who do you bounce things off of uh, at this phase of, of your career? Yeah, I wish I could say of my mother, but she passed a few few years ago. Uh, my sister would probably be, you know, my, my biggest confidant. Um, my um, uh, significant other, Valerie, would be probably the next uh, and probably close proximity to my daughter, who is now 28, who now thinks that she can tell me what to do. <laughs> and it's amazing how much I've learned from her uh, because she can. I mean, 
it's, it's interesting what we learn from young people uh, because they are, they're coming in at a different time, a different perspective. And uh, she has helped me, you know, been very insightful in how to deal with, with her generation and actually helped me to kind of see the future differently. And so I would say those, those, those three are probably at, way at the top. Got it. So what's next on the horizon for you? You talk about the great work you all are doing at the, I think it's the National Math and Science Institute. Mm-hmm. Yep, National Math and Science Initiative. Mm-hmm. So we got it. Yep. So we are we are all across the nation here. Uh, well over two million students that we we engage with. You know, thousands of high schools uh, participate in our. Uh, advanced placement program we call our CRP program. We have professional development that we are doing again in uh, you know all across the, the nation. Uh, over seventy-five thousand teachers have gone through our our training programs. And then something that I'm very excited about we we have a teacher preparation program called You Teach which we are now introducing into historically black institutions. And we have nine institutions that are part of the first cohort. And the idea here is that if we can take students who are majoring in STEM and through some additional coursework, give them the ability to now teach, they will go back into their communities and become teachers of color, teaching those very students that are our future. And if you think about that, you know, this country is, is majority, you know, people of color. And that's just going to grow. And if we don't spend the time to make sure that that segment of our population has the same rights, the same abilities, same skill sets, same education, then this country loses. And so it's, it's about our survival as a nation to ensure that all our communities uh, have this ability. What's your long-term big picture? I don't know. Long-term big picture is to um, spend more time um, learning about myself. You know, you, you would think at 60 years old, you would you would know all there is to know, but you don't. You know, when I talk with my 70-year-old friends and my 80-year-old friends, uh, uh, they're still learning, they're still growing, and, and I plan to follow in their footsteps. Excellent. And so any parting words, closing comments, remarks you want to offer? I, I think I've said the majority of it, except for uh, this. I, I think it is important for all of us to find that one thing or things that, that we do to move our community forward. Um, it doesn't have to be a big thing, you know, it doesn't have to have a lot of fanfare. It may be ensuring that there are appropriate books in the library or in the schools and in your communities. It may be developing a, a way in which you can provide mentorship to students um, so that they can see you and, and see you uh, so, you know, so that they can see what they can be. You know what? You know, there's no saying that you know you can't be what you can't, you know, what you don't see. Sure. And in our communities, um, we don't have enough of us 
out there showing young people what the possibilities are. And so whatever it is, you know, small or large, do do your part. Here, here. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. This has been incredible. I really sincerely appreciate you taking the time to share your personal story, such nuggets of wisdom. Uh, you've talked to us about, you know, being curious early on and expounding and exploring uh, what your talents and abilities are. You talked about the important lessons you learned about having to find balance in life. Uh, and you've talked about, and it goes without saying, the, the, the essential ingredients of being someone who's focused, determined, uh, and committed uh, to big dreams. So we ought to dream bigger. Uh, and my guest today has been none other than Dr. Bernard Harris, Jr. My name is Lalu Davies Yamaton. You've been listening to my brother podcast. Oh.